Can we reduce cardiovascular deaths by preventing a recurrence of atrial fibrillation? Results of the Athena trial. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the section of cardiology at the University of Chicago Hospitals, and with me today is Dr. Eric Prostowski. Dr. Prostowski is the director of the Clinical Electrophysiology Laboratory at St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the consulting professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Prostowski, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. It is a delight to be here. As the baby boomer population is getting older, the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is rapidly increasing. The first question I'd like to ask you, is atrial fibrillation definitely associated with a significant increased risk of mortality? I would say the answer to that is yes, with a qualifier. If you look at a general population study, they mostly show an increase in mortality. But you have to remember different types of patients get atrial fibrillation. And for example, in a young person with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation without any heart disease, I would say the chance of mortality increase there is extremely small. But if you look at a general population, especially the uh, more elderly patients who are more prone to getting atrial fibrillation, mortality is definitely increased. Now, there's a number of strategies on how to treat atrial fibrillation, either convert the rhythm electrically or pharmacologically to normal sinus rhythm. Now, prior to the Athena trial, was there any evidence that maintenance of normal sinus rhythm reduced this mortality? Not to my knowledge, no. So if we use an antiarrhythmic therapy, is that therapy more than for symptom relief, not really to try to improve mortality in a patient? Oh, that's a great point, and that's really what it's all about. I happen to have had the privilege of being on the guideline writing committee initial and the updated guidelines for the ACC, AHA, and European Society of Cardiology on management of AFib. And it's one of the things we discuss in detail in the document. And that is that there are many patients who are extremely symptomatic when they're in atrial fibrillation. And the primary reason to restore and maintain sinus rhythm is to reduce symptoms. For many years, as I'm sure you will remember, the thinking was that we could uh, minimize strokes and possibly even affect mortality survival by maintaining sinus rhythm, but we found through multiple randomized trials up to this point that's not been the case. So the primary reason for maintaining sinus rhythm is to reduce symptoms. And I should add one other thing. Clinicians should think to the future, not just the present. Patients who have certain types of heart disease, and we talk about this in the guidelines document, may have minimal symptoms today, but many symptoms tomorrow. An example might be somebody who has mild heart failure or somebody who has thick ventricle with uh, diastolic compliance problems who might be okay today, but maybe a couple years from now, sinus rhythm becomes much more important. So you have to not only think present, but think the future, make a decision if sinus rhythm will be important for that patient. But the decision should be based on those issues, at least up to the present time, and not issues such as, by maintaining sinus, I'm going to reduce mortality. Now, the most effective antiarrhythmic agent that we've been using is amiodarone. Why is this medication so problematic long-term in our patients? Well, amiodarone, and I've been using this drug since about 1979. It was one of the early drugs 
that we did a lot of investigations on, mostly in those days for ventricular arrhythmias, but not long afterward for atrial fibrillation. And it's, as I like to call it, the Dickens drug. It's the tale of two cities. You know, it was the best of times and the worst of times. And it's unfortunately like that. It's a very potent antiarrhythmic drug that can maintain sinus rhythm in both atrial fibrillation as well as ventricular arrhythmias where other drugs will have failed. But it's associated with a lot of non-cardiac toxicities, the most worrisome being things such as pulmonary toxicity that can lead even to death, thyroid dysfunction, GI dysfunction with predominantly liver problems, some issues that have concerned discoloration of the skin, photosensitivity, and the list goes on. So it's a wonderful antiarrhythmic. Unfortunately, it's saddled with many extra cardiac side effects. A new medication, dronetarone, has been developed, which is called the safer alternative to amiodarone. Can you describe what this medication is and why it's thought to possibly be safer? Yes, it's a drug that we've had some minor experience with. It's been studied worldwide, though, and recently presented in the Athena trial. It's a drug that has a chemical moiety that is very similar to amiodarone with certain key exceptions, the most important being it doesn't contain the iodine that amiodarone contains. And whether this by itself or a combination of factors that are more subtle have prevented the toxicities isn't clear, I think, to anybody. But some of the most remarkable issues concerning its safety are that in the trials thus far, it has not by itself caused pulmonary toxicity. It's had a very, very low, what we call proarrhythmic risk, that is creating arrhythmia problems in a situation where they weren't there before, life-threatening problems. It has not caused any appreciable increase in liver toxicity and has not caused the lung or thyroid toxicity. So you've got a drug that has antiarrhythmic properties similar to, but we don't know exactly the same as amiodarone. And in fact, those comparisons are underway, yet with an incredibly safer profile. So from a patient standpoint, even if it turns out it doesn't work quite as well, and we don't know that yet, but it may come to pass to be that way. You have a drug that is simply much safer to use and the clinician can go to bed at night without worrying if he's going to get a call about a patient who's developed some sort of bad side effect from amiodarone. Now, the Athena trial was a trial with dronetarone to prevent hospitalizations or death in patients with atrial fibrillation. Can you give us a brief overview of what this trial was studying, what type of patients were in this trial? My discussion is going to center around what's been published because I am, as others who've been involved with the development of this drug, privy to certain unpublished data, so I want to be careful to keep to the published record. Basically, this was the largest antiarrhythmic trial in patients who have atrial fibrillation. It was over 4,000 patients, and they were randomized, and there's two key points here, to outpatient therapy, which means... This drug, we now know, can be used very safe as an outpatient initiation. That's not true for many antiarrhythmic drugs. So patients were randomized to placebo or to dronetarone if they had either presently in atrial fib or even a history of atrial fib. And the outcomes of this trial were very different than the classic antiarrhythmic drug trials. In classic trials, you're basically trying to show some measure of effectiveness. In other words, for atrial fibrillation, when is the next time 
to an episode of atrial fib, if ever. So time to first recurrence or a number of recurrences or something to designate the antirhythmic potential. Well, many previous trials with ternetarone have shown it has antirhythmic potential for AFib. So that really wasn't the key. The key here was a much higher bar. Prevention of death, so survival and or hospitalization for heart failure. So basically, patients were enrolled, and they may have been rate-controlled type patients or rhythm-controlled patients. Quite frankly, we don't know all those data for patient-to-patient because those weren't the kinds of data that were collected. But what we do know is that over a long period of time, when the study results were unblinded, we find that trinaterone has a dramatic effect versus the placebo to reduce the primary endpoint of the trial, which was reduction in overall mortality or heart failure admissions. Now, the mortality by itself was not significant, as best I remember the presentation, but a reduction in cardiovascular mortality was significant, which I think was a big surprise to a lot of people. So here's a drug that was given for atrial fibrillation that reduced cardiovascular mortality, and I think that's something that's critically important and requires more analysis to figure out why that happened. If you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Prostowski, and we're talking about the recently reported results of the Athena trial at the Heart Rhythm Society meeting just recently. So this is a very interesting study because, as we've already talked about, there really hasn't been a clear reduction in events in rhythm control of atrial fibrillation. So this looks like one of the first drugs that may actually reduce cardiovascular events if we try to keep atrial fibrillation under control with this drug? That's correct, but I put a bit of a caution on your last statement, although that's the obvious way I would have finished that sentence. Do remember, we don't really know at this point exactly why this trial turned out the way it did. In other words, this was a huge trial, multiple centers in Europe and United States, Canada, around the world, and we do know you reduced hospitalizations, and we do know you reduced cardiovascular mortality, and we do know we met the endpoint of reducing hospitalizations plus overall mortality versus placebo. What we don't know as yet and it may come out as one is able to analyze the data more, I'm not privy to that at this point, is why all this happened. For example, the logical extension might be we prevented episodes of AFib, and therefore patients weren't brought into the hospital, and therefore the drug did what we wanted it to do. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe there's some other effects of the drug. Don't forget, it's a multi-channel drug that doesn't work just on arrhythmia properties. It has properties that affect vasculature. Some people have suggested that maybe some of its effects have worked through issues such as coronary disease. But again, I caution everybody to put a big hold on this until more data are analyzed. The simple fact is a drug that was given to people for AFib reduced hospitalizations for heart failure and reduced cardiovascular mortality. Those are the data. Exactly how we got to that point is still to be determined. Is it known if dronetarone has some beta-blocking activity like amiodarone? 
yeah, very good point. It has some antisympathetic activity. And in fact, it's been shown without a doubt to reduce the ventricular response during atrial fib. So even if you had episodes of atrial fib, it's quite possible by keeping the rate slower in the presence of dronetarone that those patients may not have gone into heart failure or may have gotten some other beneficial effect. So yes, it does have those effects. It also has vasodilatory effects. Remember, people tend to forget amiodarone in its very earliest days was being developed as a coronary dilator. So these are drugs that have multiple properties, all of which can have a saltatory effect on the well-being of a patient who's got heart disease. And patients were enrolled in the study who had coronary disease, hypertension, even mild to moderate heart failure. So we have a broad spectrum of patients who have benefited from the agent. Well, I want to thank Dr. Eric Prostowski, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the Athena trial, the use of dronetarone in atrial fibrillation, which showed a reduction in cardiovascular endpoints in that trial. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.